Okay, you guys won't want to miss episode 13 with Dr. James Spencer, uh, the creator of the Bearded Kettlebell, the Movement Doctor. He's from Florida. Uh, he's in South Florida. He works with a lot of equestrian, uh, a lot of pro teams, athletes, works with Cressy Sports and Performance. He basically has my uh, Willy Wonka playground as his office. He's got kettlebells, steel maces, slack lines, basically an adult playground where he rehabs his patients. Uh, he's an athletic trainer, a sports chiropractor, and he is basically my East Coast clone. Uh, both have majestic beards. We both like swinging kettlebells and working out and training people and getting people out of pain. So you won't want to miss this podcast if you are a patient or not a doctor. It may be a little technical in spots, but it is few and far between on those. So if it does get a little bit into the woods, uh, just st hang tight because the whole thing is not going to be uh, medical jargon. There are going to be some bits and pieces for people of all walks of life. So just hang tight. The whole thing is not just purely uh, for chiropractors, for physical therapists. So everyone will get some value out of this one. So there are some speed bumps of, Hey, what does that mean? But don't let that discourage you from finishing the podcast. Cause there are some nuggets of wisdom. Uh, so enjoy episode 13. Welcome to the broken to unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. Welcome to episode 13 of the Broken to Unbroken podcast. We have a, a great guest with us, Dr. James Spencer. He is practically my clone on the East Coast because uh, we both have marvelous beards. We both like to swing kettlebells around and we like functional movement. We're nerds. Uh, so it, I'm happy to introduce Dr. James Spencer and we're going to kind of dig into what makes him tick and his practice and what he's digging into these days. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you guys for having me. So we're just going to dig into uh, just your general bio, your history, like where you went to school, uh, what your educational background is, kind of how you found you your way to where you are today. Sure. So um, a lot of it started out uh, undergrad was in uh, athletic training. I spent a few years uh, in Jacksonville at the University of North Florida, and there was kind of honestly where I was introduced to more of the chiropractic realm. Um, I had been doing a ton of PT on, on a lot of label rehab and stuff with basketball and baseball at UNF, and I just wasn't very impressed with the way that I had done the PT, and I felt like there was a better way of handling things. Um, and that's how I was introduced to more of the chiropractic or functional movement approach. Um, so that way I pursued chiropractic school directly after uh, undergrad. I literally, I graduated in May, moved to Atlanta in June and started chiro school in July. Um, so it was one of those things, there was no stopping. I just kept, kept pursuing it. Um, and while I was there, I just learned more about the functional movement systems, the SFMA, um, a lot more about dry needling, and I had the luxury of working with the rugby team a little bit concurrently and, and learning how chiropractic adjustments, soft tissue mobilization, manipulation, how all of this kind of plays together. 
because I didn't feel like the the approach of just one tool was it. Like you need to have multiple tools for multiple situations for multiple people. Um, and that was where I really started to learn and explore other modalities outside of just the chiropractic school and the manipulation itself. Um, so that, that was very unique and learning a lot of opportunities all throughout chiropractic school and having that rehab background. It really helped me kind of create an expertise for a lot of the kids that were unaware of the rehab side of things. Yeah. And I, I think that you have a good point with uh, getting multiple tools and not just going, okay, hammer, nail, hit the nail, and let's try and fit every patient into my box. Because when I was in my last two trimesters at Palmer, I was a, a teaching assistant and I'd pull files on these, these people that have been coming in since I was born, getting their L5 adjusted on the left every two weeks. And it's like, why can't we empower this person to be their own doctor at home and hold this thing a little bit longer so that we're not a two-week aspirin? Correct. And, and truth, truthfully, we can be very expensive aspirins. Yeah. And I tell people I'm an expensive aspirin and I'm an expensive mute button. Like This is true. <laughs> so and I think that that's where the, the soft tissue component comes in. Uh, how, how did you get interested in dry needling and what has your experience been with that? Because that's something that I don't do, but it's one of those things that if I wasn't with a, a pretty standardized large group to where like, I can't just go off the reservation and do BFR and, and dry needling. But I, I, I like to see where your, your head is at on kind of anecdotal and evidence-based areas that you've seen a big benefit with it. Yeah, that's honestly, I'm very fortunate to have that modality. I'm one of the only practitioners in the state of Florida that's certified through Kineticor, um, and that's lended me a lot of opportunities. Um, I was first introduced to it when I was out in Houston, actually. Um, my boss was on staff with, uh, with one of the teams in the local area, and he had done a lot of dry needling, and that's kind of how I was first introduced to it. Um, we saw a ton of anecdotal benefit there. And with a lot of the guys that we had worked with. Um, so that's why I really like I pursued that more because I saw the results as opposed to, um, hey, that's really cool. And I want to just do acupuncture dry needling. What soft tissue modalities or techniques do you use on most commonly? Yeah, I'm certified in ART and Graston. Um, I would say I definitely use those more than anything else. Um, but even when I dry needle, like I can currently use those two modalities still, if I feel it's warranted, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that everyone kind of gets to the same end point. We just kind of take different routes there. Uh, because like I'll, I took a lot of SOT at, at Palmer sure. and then you look at that in conjunction with like, okay we found out that everyone has a PI on the right in Cairo school. And then you look at the PRI stuff and you figure out why, and then you look at the blocking techniques for SOT. And it's like, we're all looking at the same common misalignment that people have. We just have a different philosophy as to why it's there. Sure. Sure. And, and truthfully, the one thing that I can say about dry needling itself is, is, the process of the reset for the nervous system is much quicker 
and my depth of penetration is much much more appropriate meaning like sometimes my thumbs just can't get five inches into somebody's hips you know where i can take a needle down to the ilium and 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 butt that up against the bone and do a little bit of electrical stimulation and we'll see a more rhythmic and a more potent change in the contraction and the athlete or the client can feel it and that's where i say hey nervous systems made the tangible change now remove the needle you know it's not based upon times or philosophies we're letting the body adjust to that that adaption so do you notice that you have are there different body regions that you get more relief? Cause I've heard wonderful stories on like acute low back pain and some hip pain, like some areas that I'm like, okay, like I want to needle the heck out of that thing is like quadratus planty, like tib post, like stuff that you can't reach with your thumbs. Yeah. That's where I find the best results and bigger global muscles will make larger, quicker changes. Um, meaning like sometimes for an acute low back situation, if I just hit the quads, that will relieve the tension on the pelvis enough to alleviate the low back pain. Yeah. So, you know, with the whole, the whole SFMA or regional interdependence ideas, like we don't have to chase that pain. Yeah. And I think that like, I feel it and you've seen it, like everybody has that lateralis trigger point halfway between their knee and their hip. And if you get that to let go, a lot of times you'll get them out of that anterior JLO tilt and you can actually have something to work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then they finally can sit into hip extension versus relying yeah. on psoas. You know. So as far as your, your use of Graston versus ART, when do you kind of pull pull the trigger on one or the other they're different like uh muscle structures or different clients that you're like okay this person would do better with instrument assisted or this patient may do better with manual work or is it based on like body region or clinical presentation Uh, i would say both or all the above for sure um for example if i'm seeing uh like a, a tommy johns and they've got some scar tissue literally where that scar was cut or adhesed like we need to get in there and mobilize that tissue whether it's superficial or deep you know and that's where i'll get in there and i'll, I'll leverage some of the graston tools and, and allow that tissue to glide or move better um and that's that's a big area where i use the graston tools very frequently as well as the obliques i feel that's one area that i can get in and allow some rotation to occur and I can concurrently treat at the same time. Um, so that's that's where I really use Graston. ART is awesome for just global areas. Um, uh, the quads suck for ART. Like I wouldn't use my hands. I'd rather just drop needles in there. Um, you know, or, or glutes. It's just much more appropriate for the longevity of my hands. And I think on, honestly, for patient specificity. Yeah, my hands feel it at the end of every day, man, because we're doing uh, kind of a, a, a it falls, if you had to put a label on it, it, it's kind of an integrated model with throwing a lot of the FDM principles into some more just general manual therapy. So it, it gets a little tough on the hands at times to where there'd be like, oh man, I wish I could just pop a needle in that thing and be done with it rather than fight this monster of a quad. 
<laughs> that's all that being said that's literally what happens so i i do some consulting for uh cressy sports performance up in jupiter and my buddy shane up there that's exactly what he says he's like man it's easier for you to just drop a few needles in there than me to break my thumbs so let's talk a little bit about your practice kind of your your, your brand and just general like We've already covered your techniques, but just kind of your your general setup of your practice, whether you do cash or insurance, and then how it's kind of developed from the beginning to now. Yeah, sure. So when I first got out of school, I was an associate, um, and we did the insurance-based model. Um, one thing, thing that I think was very unique of the insurance-based model was we did 30 minutes with the patient. Um, so what we did is we actually had 15 minutes of manual therapy, whether that was ART, dry needling, um, EPAT, et cetera. And then we would hand them off to an athletic trainer who had their masters and a lot of these certifications as well. So that way they could follow up of 15 minutes of rehab directly after that manual therapy. And that was kind of in alignment with the whole reset, reinforce, reload model of, of the FMS. And that way, the client was getting 30 minutes of care, which was much larger than most people were spending time with them. And we, uh, we were able to see like every hour, I could see four people an hour. So based upon that, we could see a little bit more volume. And on the insurance model, we could make more money that way. Now, you also have to have a lot of capital behind that and a lot more manpower um, and that's just something that I'm truly not interested in right now. Uh, I, I'm a one man, one man shop. Um, my office is 750 square feet of open floor plan. I have everything from maces, the kettlebells to, um, steel clubs to slack lines to you name it. We have fun in there and we're going to get to work and we're going to lift weights, but we're also going to learn how to do uh, change direction and learn different skills and learn how to apply different movement therapies that I may introduce to somebody. Um, and I think this, this is more of the realm of where people want to go is let's learn, let's get strong, but let's also have fun at the same time. And I think that's something that's very unique about the experience that I offer my athletes and, and my patients. Um, and having that one-on-one -on -one time allows me to run a cash-based business. And that's something that um, has probably been the best decision I've ever made in my life is, is going completely 100% cash, no insurance at all. And it allows you to leverage your time and you value your time more. And people value your time more. And when they pay more money in cash, they tend to get better a little bit quicker. And... That's one thing that I like to create accountability for them. Yeah, if they if they have some skin in the game, they're they're gonna comply. And tell people desperation is the mother of compliance, but also skin in the game kind of helps too. Unless you got money to burn, it's like if people are paying out of pocket for our care, it's not not super cheap because our model is basically double the duration of time that your associate model was, was 30 minutes of manual therapy, 30 minutes of rehab. So it's basically the exact same structure, but double the amount of time. So to justify that large amount of time spent, if you're paying out of pocket, you're going to, you're going to be paying a decent amount. So you're going to do your home care or you're just going to pay me more money. And, and even if you have money, you, you don't blow it. You know? Yeah. The people that have money don't waste it. Right.
So talk to me about the bearded kettlebell. Those are, <laughs> that's how we kind of got connected is my wife bought me some amazing stance socks with your bearded kettlebell logo on it. And those are amazing, by the way, they're super thank comfy. I've broken in a couple pair of them, but can you talk to me about how that came about? Cause it's sure. pretty amazing. Yeah, honestly, it's one of these things that I was, I was very impressed with um, what Breast Cancer Awareness did with the month of October and, and raising awareness. And with a lot of like the, the rugby team and the whole No Shave November or Movember movement, um, it was cool to see why they did that and to raise awareness for prostate cancer. And I felt like one of those things was it was so easy for me to help like others without really influencing, um, you know, the whole prostate cancer society or male cancer society. And it was easy for me to do. And like when, for example, I was in Cairo school and I grew my hair out for two years and donated it to Locks of Love. Like that cost me nothing, but that was something that I could give to somebody else. So for the bearded kettlebell, that's really why I created it was not so much that I had a freaking awesome beard, but it was to raise more awareness on the bigger level. And um, kettlebells are just badass. And I think they're a f uh, like a phenomenal tool for rehab as well as strength training. And that's something that I wanted to kind of conjoin the two together. And then really something that influenced me was growing up skateboarding. Like just seeing these different t-shirts and brands and um odd shapes and quirky little figurines that they made was just very attractive. And I was like, well, how can I create all of this together? And so I thought a lot about it and I was like, you know, let's keep it simple, but let's keep it effective. And everybody had done like the mustache thing and I was cool with that, but I'm like, all right, how can I be myself and also create a brand? And that was the bearded kettlebell. That's a great story, man. And, and it, if you haven't checked it out, just Search the hashtag on Instagram, Bearded Kettlebell, and we'll put all of uh, Spence's Instagram and contact information and his website so you can check it out for yourself. But they're pretty awesome socks, and it's a great logo, and it's pretty cool that there's a story behind it that it's going to a, it's a good cause for awareness as well. So that's Heck pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah, and that's something, honestly, that I've I've kind of prided myself in is every dollar that I make – a certain amount of proceeds will go to a nonprofit and um, that nonprofit is it. I, I listen, I would donate to anybody, but the one that I personally give to is Rob's rescue. And that's something that I let my clients and patients know, like, Hey, it's also going to something better. Excellent. So what is your patient demographic? Have you created a niche market or is it just a general patient population or wh what's your, what's your demographic like in, in South Florida? Yeah, sure. So uh, I do a lot of consulting for pro athletes and, and a few organizations, um, which takes up a little bit of my time. Uh, the one thing that's unique is where I live in Wellington is the equestrian capital of the world. So I've kind of pigeonholed myself into equestrian sports and um, specifically polo, which has been a pretty cool learning experience and um, something that they need attention. They need some people like me to create awareness of strength training and fitness and longevity of the sport. And uh, so that's pretty much, I would say, like December to April, 
that takes up a lot of my time as far as um, equestrian sports. So um, other than that, you know, down here in South Florida, we see a ton of golfers and a ton of tennis players. Yeah. And do you tend to work with kind of an even age group across the board or is it more of what your textbook silver sneakers, Florida, like retired snowbird would be, or is it just kind of uh, even across the board as far as age range? Yeah, truthfully, I, I don't see, it's not that I don't want to, I just don't tend to see too many older people. Um, mid thirties, mid forties, mid fifties is kind of my age range. And, um, that's something that a lot of people that are a little bit younger are valuing my time more and they're investing in their health and their movement and they'll pay a little bit more out of pocket to learn some of these techniques. Yeah. And that's interesting that you've been using the slack line because that's something that I was having trouble finding something challenging enough to give my, cause I treat a lot of ultra trail runners and it's hard to reproduce the proprioceptive demands of running on a trail for a hundred miles when you're CNS fatigued, sleep deprived, low blood sugar, like delusional, almost hallucinations. And like, and it's nighttime. Yeah. I mean, I, I sent a, a slack line with one of my trail runners, the local, like, rock hoppers picnic and it was like the 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 hit of the the whole picnic to where they were drinking beer and playing on that thing and i think we sold a lot of slack lines for them because they and they do their rehab if it's fun well and that's it too like that's my ultimate goal is and kind of where i want to take a stance in the industry is listen i think strength training is great and it's important um it also costs the body a lot to maintain a lot of skeletal muscle mass right and one area that we tend to lack and we, we need to look more into is balance and balance training. You know, statistically, you're more likely to die from a slip and fall than you are cancer at the age of 60. Like that's something that if we could prevent or we could help proprioceptively or even vestibularly, like this feedback is going to be important. And if we start teaching from the ground up of barefoot training and teaching good proprioceptive input there, now we're training nervous system versus muscular system. One dominates the other. We all know that, right? And one controls that. So I think if we could give good nutrients to the nervous system and good awareness, now we may not have these slip and falls at 60 or 70 or 80. You know, and maybe your demand of skill increases. And who knows, you know, I mean, we may look at ACL research on this. You know, I mean, these are things that we need to start exploring more from a rehab and performance standpoint that we're not really looking into. And I think that the balance work can benefit across the board because there's some subset of the population. Like if we try and strength train with people, like there, there are some subset of the female population. They're like, Oh, I'm not going to touch any weight that isn't pink. Cause I don't want to get muscular and gross. Uh, and I don't want to touch a weight cause I don't want to get bigger. They have this, preconceived notion that if they lift weights there that's going to lead to injury uh, and i think that starting off with like a good balanced foundation pun intended is a is a good place to start for just getting people's feet underneath them and getting some awareness correct you know and plus i mean like I, i'm I, i'm totally into the whole earthing and grounding idea um i've read tons of books plenty of research on it and it costs nothing you know so that's one thing that I can tell you 99% of people will get from me as far as an exercise prescription 
is, hey, let's just walk barefoot outside. Whether it's in the, you know, on the grass, nothing on the asphalt, nothing on the concrete, in the beach sand, in the water, something to that effect. Yeah, and this was a very weird month in Texas where the third wettest uh, September in history uh, since 1946, I think, is the next wettest month. We've gotten a lot of rain, nothing by Florida standards, but it's been good to just go out in the grass when it's wet and supercharged and just walk barefoot uh, and just kind of dodge the sandburrs that we have here. Uh, and, but, it, it, I mean, it, you do notice a change in your energy levels, and and it's not placebo because I don't think I have enough of an imagination to experience a placebo effect. Well, I, I yeah, I think this is I think this is also something that we need to look into from a recovery standpoint. You know, again, this is something that when we say, "Hey, self-care, self-treatment creates some autonomy." It doesn't cost anybody thing, like anybody anything. You can just go to the beach and and literally dive the feet into the sand or walk barefoot in your grass like you said. And one way that I explain it to people cuz people start looking at me like I'm about ready to sell them essential oils and and, and tickle their shadow on the wall when I talk about this right. is I'm like, okay, do, do your joints hurt more when a front rolls in? And they're like, yeah, they, they really hurt. And I'm like, part of that is because all of, I mean, we're electrically charged human beings and that affects our electrical charges and the permeability of our ion channels and our nerves. So, Correct. I mean, that's an unseen thing that you know has a very real effect. So why not take advantage of something free that can have an equally positive effect? Exactly, exactly. And for me, it's a no brainer. And once people start feeling like you have to them, they're, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. This is, I don't know why I wouldn't do it. And people kind of recognize me as kind of the, the, the healthy skeptic to where unless I've tried it, I'm not going to recommend it to you. So I've got a lot of things that I've purchased from a rehab standpoint that are sitting in a closet because they didn't work but they at least got tried so that if there was a benefit noticeably, then it's like, Oh yeah, it's safe. And it, it, it seems to reproduce these benefits over multiple trials. And so we'll try it out. So, but there's a lot of garbage that I have sitting in the closet that I I've tried. And I'm like, I would never give that to anyone at home because that's a great way to get called by a lawyer. Exactly. Exactly. And a like number one is do no harm. Yep. And I've, Speaking of do no harm, I have dusted up a few times on that endo board. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have one? Yeah, I've had one for probably over 10 years now, probably 12 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the only thing we had to practice for wakeboarding in Wisconsin in the the winter is just kind of practicing on that in the living room watching TV because you can't really be out wakeboarding on ice. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I used to teach wakeboarding in uh, in college. And we couldn't snowboard because I played hockey in high school. And if our coach uh, caught us with any ski tags from a lift on our jacket, we got benched because he didn't want us getting hurt. Uh, come on, coach. Yeah. So it, first time on a snowboard was a little bit of a rude awakening because it's like, this is not getting slower at 17 miles an hour. It is getting much faster and I don't know what to do. And I'm out of control. Yeah. <laughs> So what continuing ed seminars have you done recently? Which ones have you found most effective? Are there any on the hit list that you're wanting to go to so that we can kind of plan a trip and nerd out and hit a seminar together? Yeah, I'm uh, this year I have a couple 
plans still. I'm I'm going to be attending um, TPI, like the World Golf Fitness Summit next month in Orlando. I'll be there. Um, and then I'll be at the Rock Tape Movement Summit in Miami um, down there. I plan on um, going to like one of the best seminars I can say that I really enjoyed recently that I, I liked and, and is very unique. It's called Racket Fit. And TPI's screen for tennis. Awesome. That's what I've been looking for and I haven't been able to find it. Yep. And um, they had the first one in Orlando at the USPTA and very informative. I love a lot of the TPI systems. Um, and to see what that has done for golf is very cool. And to see what the racket fit is going to be doing for tennis in the future, I think is um, really exciting to see and, and to see that at the ground level. And um, I mean, I'm already a big fan of, of the, the TPI system. So to see what they're they're about to do with that. And then they're also coming out with um, a baseball-specific movement screen. So uh, looking forward to seeing kind of what that has to offer as well. Excellent. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something that I'm going to look up because I've got a, a couple of rising stars here that are 15, 16-year-old kids that live here in, in town and they're pretty high level and just being able to coordinate with their coaches. And that's the biggest thing that I took away from the, the TPI stuff is like, I knew the SFMA cause I've taken it a couple times and uh-huh. just integrating that and learning the golf specific language uh, and, and being able to communicate with a golf pro without sounding like a, a complete amateur is, is pretty effective cause it earns you some street cred, so to speak. Well, and, and truthfully, I, 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 you know, I would say go play it. Like if you know how to play golf, you can talk the language and having the TPI background helps you even more. And I would say the same for tennis, like being able to hold a racket a certain way and talk the language of grips like that, that's going to be beneficial and buy you credibility and having the background of the TPI, the SFMA and the racket fit. Now, now I think that's where you've got some valuable tools to start helping uh, not only country clubs, but a lot of teams. Yeah, and, and I think that whenever I lecture, I always tell uh, the the attendees that you don't have to be the top elite athlete in the sport of the people you're treating, but you need to be a student of the sport. You need to at least go mix it up and, and get your feet wet and just learn the terminology and like I didn't know baseball as well being from the Midwest. So I went and shadowed a pitching coach doing weighted ball drills and coaching people and just was a fly on the wall for like every, once or twice a week for a whole year and just videoing stuff and giving them free advice. And it's just that whole Gary Vee principle, jab, 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 right hook, just give them enough stuff for free. And then they're like, Hey, you're our guy. Well, it's funny how you say that. That's actually how I started working at uh, Cressy Sports Performance. Um, I went up there on an observational internship and just kind of one thing led to another. And next thing you know, I ended up working there. So pretty cool how that works. Yeah, I work with a group of guys here in town. Uh, super sharp. Uh, Phil and Patrick at Explosive Sports Performance. And Patrick used to intern with Cressy. And awesome. Phil's a super sharp guy. Um, he's one of those guys that goes to a lot of the same seminars that we do. 
Um, and Phil's, he's my health insurance, man. And if I want an athlete to not get hurt and not do stupid stuff, I send them to Phil and Patrick over there and they, they take great care of them and they do a lot of the Omega wave scanning. They awesome. have a force plate and they're they're I mean, they're just, they're really ahead of the curve and doing a bunch of video analysis on sprint mechanics. And that's awesome. They're just, and Phil just got back from Zach Couples' first seminar out in Seattle, and that was one that I had on the radar. But I probably would have been served with divorce papers on the way back. We were <laughs> busy every single weekend with birthday stuff, sure. Like the last three weeks, and I don't think heading out of town would have been in the cards. But I'm that's one of the seminars on my hit list this year or next is to hit up one of Zach's seminars because he's a bright guy. He's a good dude. Yep. So any other continuing ed stuff, anything that you've taken like in previous years that has helped you out other than like the ART grass and stuff? Yeah, honestly, the one thing I'm going, I'm going to try and do this year is not go to a seminar. <laughs> um, Just integrate I, the stuff. Yeah, man. I have so much stuff to read up and catch up on and learn and dive in a little bit deeper. I, I, I need to start doing a little bit more of that. Um, I think you always have to stay up on the continuing ed, but at this standpoint, you know, like we can only learn so much before we have to really start going back around that circle, you know. Um, and I'd like to dive into some of the PRI stuff that I've learned and uh, a little bit of the DNS stuff that I've learned and see how I can start to leverage those those systems a little bit better. So the best man in my wedding, uh, he's living in Bali right now. Uh, and, and he's one of my best friends. He's been there for almost a year with his wife, just on a very open-ended sabbatical. And we did pretty much every PRI course uh, all around the country. And uh, we basically, for three weeks, he's been testing a lot of this stuff out with the just really diving deep for like eight months just on rib mechanics. And so just hashing that out and really kind of diving deep on that. It's just like, okay, we've gotten a very superficial level, especially with a lot of the upper cervical TMJ uh, mechanics on, you can dive deep for a whole year on part of one of these seminars, especially with the PRI stuff. Sure. So talk to me about how you use kettlebells in your clinic, how you got to start using kettlebells. Cause for me, I just took the RKC uh, cause I had a couple of gin and tonics and signed up for it. Uh, <laughs> and then I started reading and I'm like, crap, people have been training for three years for this thing. And this is in four months in Houston and I need to do a hundred snatches in five minutes. And, uh, but it was a, it was a great course and I didn't do it for any, like, I'm not going to train people. I had a bunch I mean, if you're looking to train people, I get emails every week to train people because I'm still on the website. Sure. But how do you get into to kettlebell training and how do you use it in your clinic? Yeah, you, you know, to be truthful with you, I was introduced um, to a Pavel DVD in probably like 2008. And I literally just bought every book that he had. And every DVD he had, and I just watched that for about eight months. I purchased the kettlebell from Perform Better, and I said, all right, I'm going to learn this. And I literally learned his system in and out. Um, and that was kind of my initial introduction to kettlebells itself. And then when I was in Houston, um, actually a patient we had at our office was an RKC instructor. And so a lot of times when she would come in, 
she would take us through instructional Turkish get-ups or something to that. And uh, I really, that's when I learned to fall in love with just how easy and beneficial to have one tool would be versus uh, an entire barbell system or um, just uh, even a trap bar and how much workout you could get from it. And, and one tool could be used a million ways, right? Yeah. And I was, I was really gravitated to that. And they take up the same floor print as like a bathroom trash can. So it's not like you need a lot of space for a whole garage gym and a squat rack and a bench and all this gear. It's like if you got a two by two square, you got enough room in your house for a kettlebell. Yep. And so that's, I, I mean, that's why I loved it. And then learn more about Dan John, obviously, and, and Brett Jones and introduced to more of the FMS and the CK FMS stuff. And that's where I was really, really intrigued with how they were using it for correctives and, and not only correctives for performance. Um, so that's what really attracted me to them. Have you done that 10,000 swing workout from Dan John? Hell no. I'm smarter than that. I've done it like six times and I've done it once with the 70 all the way through. And the first couple of days I was like, I don't know if I did a good thing for my back or a really bad thing for my back. Well, you probably felt stronger after, didn't you? Oh yeah. My deadlift went up by like 40 pounds yeah, and, damn right. and my grip strength on both sides. Cause I, I'm a nerd. I test before and after and like mm -hmm. my grip strength went up by like 20 pounds and it's already high as a manual therapist. And I'm like, okay, if that brings my grip up 20 pounds, it's, it's, it's legit. See, and that's, that's where I, I like, I'm into a lot more of the grip strength stuff as well and learning how that affects certain, uh, certain areas of the body or, or, you know, kind of that whole irradiation principle and when to use it, when not to use it, especially with a lot of gripping guys, like whether it's a baseball pitcher or a baseball hitter or a golfer, tennis player, like they're always gripping stuff. And they did that longevity study. They said grip strength was more predictive of longevity than blood pressure. Pretty damn cool, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like the one that the contact points you need to get on and off the floor, each additional contact point you need is like a seven year cut off your lifespan. Right. So if you need to go to like all fours and then get up, it's not looking very good for you. Then if you can just like pop out of an Indian squat and just have one contact point. Yeah. And here's an interesting uh, research. The Canadian OC did some research on the equestrian and show jumping team. And they concluded that equestrian show jumpers have stronger grip strength than NHL athletes. Wow. That doesn't bode well for guys I went to college with. Right. Well, and that's interesting because you wouldn't expect that considering they're barely holding on to these reins. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, that's something why I really was intrigued by that. And I was like, all right, I need to look more into grip strength and how that applies to a lot of the equestrian athletes themselves. Have you looked into that Gray Cook series where it's just that work capacity walk where you go with a kettlebell, you go overhead, then rack, then suitcase, and when you fatigue, you switch sides? So I did the fundamental capacity screen um, in May, and that was that was like the, it's the six point carry essentially, and that's that was like part of the test. Like we had to take and walk around the room. And I think we only lasted actually eight minutes because everybody was so fatigued and fried out. 
Yeah. And, and that's, that's amazing stuff, man. You know, and, and that's, I think that's where the future of a lot of the performance is gonna, is gonna go to. Um, and to have some of these baseline measurements is now you're putting people onto a good predictive path, which is pretty cool. And we've been using it for just building work capacity and people that may have a hot disc or something to where they can walk, but they want to run. And I'm like, okay, just do this. Or we just start them off. If they can't hold good overhead position with a neutral pelvis, they just do unilateral suitcase carries. And I'm like, okay, you know what we're trying to rehab here. They're like, yeah, you, you just go on and on like a, a weirdo about hamstrings, obliques and glutes. And I'm like, okay, if you're carrying a, a kettlebell in your right hand, you're firing right glute and left oblique. So you're doing your rehab and you're getting a workout in and you don't have to run. It's a two for one, right? Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's what I liked about a lot of those, just the unconventional tools in general is how you can leverage them and, and make them a little bit more of a, a, you don't need a lot of space. You can get a lot of training effect and you can concurrently rehab somebody. Um, so I, I completely love it and agree with what, what you're doing over there. It's very, very cool to hear that there's other practitioners around that are doing very similar ideas as, as I am. Yeah. It's just, it, it's cool that, uh, the profession with social media is you, you can get a very dichotomous, uh, type of, a an argument where people will argue philosophy and, and, we got a lot of that in Cairo school, but you can also go, Hey, these people are kind of of like mind and we can kind of bounce ideas off of each other and network. And I think that's, what's really powerful in the, in the podcasting environment is like, I've gotten some people on that I didn't think would say yes. And they just, they want to chat and, and bounce ideas off of each other. And I think that's, what's really cool. And we can look at all the, the, people that get butthurt over political, religious, and nutrition things on social media. But there's also people that are kind of part of the cut from the same cloth that you can just really uh, latch on to regardless of geography and just go, hey, like we're, we're alike. And if we need to bounce ideas off each other, it's a pretty cool network to build. And, and truth be told, it's just honest, authentic feedback, you know, like, there's no competition, you know, and when you have that, when you have that mindset or you have that scarcity mindset of competition, no, nothing, there's no growth for anybody, you know, and, and having that, like you said, that, that feedback or that this, Hey, I've got this idea. What do you think? That's, that's really cool. Cause now both people are growing and now the profession's also growing. And I think that's a sign of maturity as a clinician and as a doctor is you're not like correcting everyone like, oh, I'm doctor so-and-so. And it's just like, <laughs> like patients in the waiting room, they'd be like, oh, doctor, and they'll go Nick or and they're like, oh, sorry, Dr. Askey. I'm like, no, I was Nick before I was Dr. Askey. And like, I actually prefer first name. Uh, whereas early on, I was like, hi, I'm Dr. Askey, oh, doctor, doctor, doctor. And you get... You also kind of get defensive if your patient asks somebody else or gets Facebook advice or gets a second opinion. But now I welcome it because it's like, okay, like 
I may learn something or I may have more confidence in my clinical skill set because the patient may just go to another doctor and find out that our original plan and diagnosis was the best option for them and they will be back and they will trust me more. And that's a lot of the networking, like have good referrals, have good resources around you and stay in your lane. Like I do, I, I talk to a lot of trainers around the area and strength coaches around the area and i'm like listen like i can fix them in two visits or it's going to take you 15 every time you touch them yeah and we're we're pretty networked in with a bunch of evidence-based orthopedists and specialists here in town and exactly. uh, it's just i mean it's nothing for me to just pull out my cell phone and text them and go hey i got this case can you look up their imaging and this system and see if you want to see them or not and it's just an easy relationship to have, but you don't have that if you don't stay in your lane and you go off the deep end and off the reservation and don't do stuff that is supported by the evidence. Correct. And that's, that's cool too, is I think communication improves. And when there's better communication, there's going to be a lot better results. You know, if there's lack of communication, somebody's going to get lost, something's going to get lost in translation and then the fingers get pointed. And that's not what I want. I'd rather over communicate. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, a lot of my afternoons off, I'm scrubbing up and going and observing surgeries or just shadowing neurologists, neurosurgeons, orthopedists, just, and that's a fun afternoon off for me because I get to see what happens. And I don't do a lot of post-surgical stuff because I'm not, I don't have a lot of continuous passive motion machines and a lot of these modalities that we need to speed up wound healing. And I'm not as cognizant of treating around open incisions and I don't want to get blamed for an infection, but I, I still like to see what happens when a competent physical therapist gets them 85% to the finish line and they just need something manually worked on to get to the, the last 15%. I need to know what happened in that surgery. Correct. And, and honestly, having an, a knowledge, you can relate to the patient then. There's a little bit more empathy and you can say, hey, I know, although I didn't have it, I know what it's like. I saw it. I've experienced it. And you can relate to them and talk them through a little bit of the tightness or the discomfort or whatever they may be feeling in an area. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're approaching 45 minutes. Is there anything else that you want to discuss before we wrap this up and get your contact information out there? No, sir. I think that was it, man. I hope you guys, uh, you know, keep everything bigger out there in Texas. You bet, man. Well, uh, where can people get a hold of you? What What are the best channels to contact you, or at least put a face with a name? Yeah, I think uh, best is probably through Instagram. It is dr james spencer, and that uh, that's probably the best way of reaching out to me. I'm pretty easy going, so if you'd like to reach out or ask any questions, I'm here to help. Awesome, man. Well, I hope this isn't the last time we get you on the podcast and uh, make sure we stay in touch and I uh, look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks, man. And uh, tell your wife again, thank you for those socks. You bet. I thank her every day, but I'll tell her thank you from you. All right, man. All right. Thanks. Later.